It has been, are we good? It has been an amazing week at VBS. And uh, I am so grateful to Linda Scotto. Would you please give her a hand? She's, she's done an excellent, excellent job. And of course, good leaders don't do things by themselves. She's had quite a crew. And so there have been a number of people who have put any number of hours into decor here. And uh, I just want to acknowledge the creativity and the amount of work. For example, this flower right here had to be constructed of three pieces of cardboard, had to be cut out, painted, and glued to. And that's just one flower. And look around. We have a waterfall. We have a volcano in the corner. We have all these uh, wild and wacky, wonderful flowers. I wish flowers grew like this in real life. I think these are just just fantastic. I feel like I'm in some sort of special adventure land when I've got... I feel like Alice a little bit, maybe. Um, palm trees and cargo nets. and I mean, It's just amazing, all the stuff. And it isn't just here in the sanctuary with the footprints along the windows and the vines growing up our pillars. It's, it's in our narthex. It's in each classroom. It's even outside. And of course, our fellowship hall. It's just amazing. We have ostriches. There's one over here with a couple of eggs. Papier-mâché. Uh, there's uh, papier-mâché uh, octopuses, octopi, excuse me, in the fellowship hall. There's a shark swimming up above uh, in, the, in the rafters. It's incredible. And all of this energy and effort, because we want kids to know Jesus. And really, we want all of you to know Jesus. Parents sometimes learn about things that are important through their children. And so VBS becomes an incredibly important opportunity for us to speak into the lives of children in really fun and wacky and wonderful ways. So I'm just going to give you all a quiz. The kids know this. So children, please don't answer. Let's see how smart your parents are. Okay? Is that a deal? Yes. All right. No kids answering who went to vacation Bible school. We want to test the parents on this. Any parents here know what this creature is? Shh. Remember, we're, we're quizzing the parents there. It's an oxalotl, and it's found in only a couple of lakes in Mexico. And as you can see, it's developed with external gills, which is extremely unusual. It's a kind of, I guess it would be in the salamander family somehow. So this very wonderful, strange creature becomes a Bible learning tool uh, that morphs into a point and a story in the course of our Vacation Bible School, and this is multiplied through all the, quote, weird animals that are part of our weird animal VBS. And so that's just a part of what's going on. Anyway, before I forget, I want to ask all of you to help us immediately after church. Tomorrow, Christ Church uses this facility. Starting this next week, we have our chess club going. Um, Sally with Little Patch of Earth Preschool is gearing up for an expansion. And so she's going to be doing some work in H&I. We need your help getting this undone. It took hundreds of hours to put up. It's going to take dozens of hours to 
take down and put away properly. So after church, will you do me a favor, a couple of favors? Yes? Can you help me out? Okay, help Linda out if you won't help me out. How's that? And I, I know that not everybody is, is, reaches everybody, so help Linda if you won't help me. Go to the glass and carefully peel off these footprints and take the tape. Do not leave the tape there, please. Same thing with the front doors. Help gently peel off the vines and separate the flowers and, and, and just do that gently. If there's something up here you see that you can reach and grab other than the cross, Carry it to room H, where we can deconstruct it later tonight. And if you do have time this evening, you're not otherwise engaged, Linda would welcome your help in room H at 7 o'clock p.m. to begin to dismantle this incredible project so that everybody else can do what they need to do this week. Can you remember after church? And, oh, you know, clean up your pew. There's stuff that's fallen on the floors from VBS papers that have been crammed in the, the thing in front. Just make things tidy before you leave today and help move this stuff to H, and it's going to be a glorious, uh, a glorious help to our VBS leadership. Again, thank you, Linda and staff. We had a lot of volunteers. We had 61 kids here this week, which is the most we've ever had. That's extremely exciting. Hopefully next year we'll have 81, and then the year after that maybe 160 kids. How's that? It's all about reaching kids for Jesus. Well, there's some stories that get told in the course of VBS, and because we have those children here and we have their families here, I want to retell them in a simple form but also tell them in a more adult form because the bottom line is we're a busy people, and we're constantly bombarded with messages and media and we're constantly multitasking and most of us don't take time as we really ought to to read and read the stories of scripture and figure out how those stories might fit into our experience or our lives we, we just don't spend the time with that that maybe we did 40 years ago because we have so much more to pay attention to in so many ways so we're going to tell these stories and hope that somewhere our biblical literacy increases and our greater understanding and appreciation for the larger gospel also grows and increases. I would like to begin today, I normally end with a blessing, a prayer, but today I would like to begin with a prayer and I'd like you to bow your heads and join me. Lord, it's been a wonderful week at Vacation Bible School and I thank you for the children who've come, for the parents who've brought them, the grandparents for the telling and retelling of the stories that have taken place. I thank you for all those who put their effort to this project and this program, and for the blessings of having a strong children's ministries department at this church. We're so grateful for all of these things, and I ask your blessing on all that has been done that your kingdom might indeed increase. Be with us now as we review these stories, and by your Spirit, may we hear and may we see in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Our New Testament reading was from Ephesians 3. You might want to take a moment and open your Bible to Ephesians 3. It's Pew Bible, page 1080. 1080 in your Pew Bible. I'm focused today on verses 1 to 13, and out of this we're going to go back to the stories that have been told. 
at VBS. Paul is addressing the question of the Gentiles and their inclusion in God's grace and his mission. What we see in Scripture from the time of the original covenant to the time of Revelation is an increasing inclusion, a magnification and inclusion of God's of, of who counts as God's people. By the time we get to the ministry of Christ, on the one hand, he says, I've come for the Jews, but he ministers to people in Samaria and outlying places. He speaks to the Jews, but he talks about faith like he's never seen in Israel when it comes to some of the Romans and others. So already the kingdom is opening up. Children who have no status and no power in the then world are the essence of the kingdom of God. And so Paul is an expansion on this. The Gentiles are now being grafted in, and the good news is they don't have to become Jews in order to be Gentiles. And that's the setting of Ephesians here. Verse 2, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. That's a big sentence. There's a lot going on. But Paul is basically saying here, the mystery has been made known to me by revelation in Christ. I'm writing it. In reading it, then you'll be able to understand, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. I want to understand Paul's insights into the mystery of Christ, and I want to have some insights of my own. He says here, this is an expansion because this was not made known to people of other generations. But it's now a new revelation, a new revelation of the mystery of Christ to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the Gospels, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together not of separate bodies but one bodies, and shares together of the promise in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing thing. Jews and Gentiles together heirs part of one body, that which had been separate, that which had been other, now one, incorporated, pulled together, brought in. It's said in the New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Paul says it. All of us are part of Christ. So this is what happens now as we look at the expansion of gospel and ministry. The mystery is that all of us together are sharers in the promise of Christ. Verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, did you catch that little phrase? Now, through the church, through you, the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose 
that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul's in prison writing this, and he says it's for your glory. His intent, verse 10, is that now through the what? Oh, the church is sleeping. I'm not sure the manifold mystery of Christ can be made plain to everyone if we're sleeping. The intent is that now through the that's better. Your VBS kids are much sharper than most of you, I'm thinking. No, I know you're just shy. This is a quiet group, and it's all right. That's all right. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, not just the earthly realms, but we're witness in the universe through the church. Jews and Gentiles, one body, reconciled. You see, God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, and it's our job to share that good news. Some people present the gospel this way. They say that we come to a point of recognizing our wretchedness. We appeal to God to forgive our sins. We count on the covering of his blood to wash our sins away. We step into his grace at a moment of, uh, in cleansing, in a moment of baptism, and we become part of a body which then now we must walk in holiness and continue in sanctification. I don't have a huge problem with that, except I think it's more helpful to say that if indeed all of us have been reconciled to Christ, what we need to do is wake up to our reconciliation, whatever that process looks like. We become spiritually and mentally aware that the person of Jesus Christ has already reconciled us to the Father, and it is baptism, it is repentance that is an acceptance of those terms. You see, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. And I'll just say, let's call ourselves the Jews for purposes of illustration, the ones who are in the house. And now let's look outside the house. There's no difference except that we hopefully, who are in the house, have recognized that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that His love is ours, that the mystery of Christ is revealed now in us through His people, and that together we're the body of Christ. There's something powerful about that, something that maintains itself in mystery and yet propels us forward. Well, these are not VBS stories, obviously. And if I had spoken this way to VBS children, they would have been asleep for their parents to take them home, much as maybe a few of you will be. But let's get to some stories. One of the stories was told was about 10 lepers. And I know most of you know this, but maybe a few of you don't. Leprosy was a dreaded disease. We don't really have it in the Americas, not in any significant number anyway. It's still present in certain parts of Africa and in very impoverished places. But it's a disease not just of skin, as people think. It's not a, a whitening or a, a blemish on the skin. It's actually a deterioration of nerve tissue and skin tissue and sensation and ultimately eats one away to the point of death. It's an awful disease. And it was considered a judgment of God 
There's another story I'm going to reference very quickly that will help you understand this. When Moses and his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron are leading the people out of Egypt where they are enslaved to the promised land, Miriam speaks against Moses. Moses is the leader. He is God to the people. Now, I don't mean literally God, capital G. I'm not talking about idolatry. He is God's representative and authority to the people of Israel. He is so honored by God that even when God says, speak to the rock and Moses strikes it, God honors Moses in his disobedience with water from the rock. Moses is an amazing prophet of God, one of the greats. And we know he's one of the greats because when Jesus himself is on earth and goes up to the mountain, he meets there two prophets, Moses and Elijah. Moses is one of those wonderful archetype, archetypal figures of Scripture. Moses is the prophet who leads God's people to the promised land. Jesus is the prophet who leads his people to the Father's promised land. Miriam speaks against Moses, and the penalty is swift and immediate. She is stricken with leprosy. She becomes white. And she was a Midianite. She came from the Sinai region, which means that she was not a white woman in the sense that Northern Europeans are white. She was Shemitic, but she was dark. And she became white immediately with leprosy. An advanced stage of leprosy was placed upon her. Prayer was given, repentance made, and she was restored, we read in Scripture. But it was understood by the people of Israel that leprosy was a kind of judgment. And so here we have a story in the New Testament of lepers who lived... Have any of you seen Ben-Hur? Old, old film. You have to be 50 or more if you've seen Ben-Hur, right? Anybody under 50 seen Ben-Hur? Yeah, all the 49-year-olds are raising their hand. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm, not, I'm not quite 50, seven hours to go, but uh, I, I saw it. All right. Okay, you youngins who are under 50. Thank you, Kayla. For, was it a good movie? Would you recommend it? It was long, she said. So if you are attention span uh, challenged, there is an intermediate intermission in Ben-Hur. Go get yourself a bowl of ice cream or something, jog around the block, whatever. Great movie, I recommend it. But in Ben-Hur, if you've seen it, there's a scene where he visits a leper colony. They lived in caves, rocks, little encampments of their own because it was thought that leprosy was highly contagious and nobody else in the population wanted it. Plus, they were not just contagious, but they were accursed. They were unclean, and they had to remain separate from everyone else. The only way to reenter society was to go to the priest who would examine them and declare them clean or not clean and give them the ceremonial bath and so forth. They could reenter society that way. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and Samaria was not Jewish territory. These were half-Jews who kept only to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That was their whole Bible. And so they didn't know. You'll hear more about this in just a minute. But Samaria is on the border of what Jesus tries to bring in, he tries to minister to. 
On the border between Samaria and Galilee, and as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, which they were required to do, and called out to him in a loud voice because he was a distance. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Have pity on us. I don't know what they wanted. I like to think that they believed in that moment that they could be healed. It's possible that they just wanted some food or they wanted words of comfort. I think they were looking for healing. Have pity on us. And when he saw them, Jesus just said this. He doesn't ask, well, what is it you want? He doesn't offer them food. In this case, he doesn't touch them. He simply says, here it is. Go show yourselves to the priests. Go show yourselves to the priests. He hasn't said be well. He hasn't said be cleansed. He hasn't said leprosy, leave them. He hasn't done anything. No words or incantations, no miracles at this point. They can look and see that they are lepers. Go show yourselves to the priest. And they turn to leave. And as they turn to leave to go show themselves to the priest, lo and behold, they are restored. No longer leopards, left leopards, yeah. No longer lepers. No longer. They head to the priest. The priest will see them. The priest will declare them clean, and they are now free to rejoin society, to be a part of their families again. They have been made whole in every way imaginable, spiritually, socially, physically. This isn't just a physical healing. This is a healing of psyche as well. And they are overjoyed as they see the leprosy falling away from them. They start to run because they can't wait to get this over with, this ordeal, this curse that they have been living under. It's an amazing moment because of the sheer number that Jesus heals in this time. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw he was cleansed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Don't you just get emotional thinking about that moment? You've just learned that you have stage four cancer. You've got two weeks to live. And Jesus appears to you and says, it's over, you're well. And now you you go to the doctor and you get the scan and there's not evidence of cancer anywhere. You get the blood work and there's nothing anywhere in your system. You're healthy. The doctor can't find any evidence of cancer. Are you going to get a little emotional about this, do you think? You are. Ten people have been restored. Their lives changed forever. They're clean. And the one who turns around and thanks Jesus and hears the note in the Gospel of Luke, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What is Jesus saying? There's a passage elsewhere in Scripture. He says, if you don't praise me, 
the rocks will cry out. When God's people don't praise him, don't recognize what he's done, don't acknowledge his gifts and his goodness and his grace and his power, someone else will speak. When Israel could not see the Messiah before them, when they could not engage the mystery of Christ, it was the surrounding peoples who acknowledged him. It was the Samaritan who came back and said thank you. It was the Samaritan who praised God. The next story in our VBS series, and I'm not necessarily doing them in chronological order as VBS uh, had them, but the next story told is found in John, and it's chapter 4. You can see I'm going to have to accelerate my storytelling schedule just a little bit. Five more of these and we'll be here till one. <laughs> Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. What did John say earlier? He must increase and I must decrease, Yes. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob was, had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now let's just point out a couple of things quickly. This is a big deal. We believe we have found, archaeologically, Jacob's well. Do you have any idea how deep it was? At the time of Christ, it probably was about 114 feet deep. Today, it goes down 138 feet. Because as you know, the ruins get covered, the sands blow, soil builds up over the old civilization. Jacob would have dug a well to get water, or at least he's reputed to have dug it, 100 feet down with no modern tools. This to get water. You can understand the importance of water in a desert. You can understand the importance of water in a place where there is none. And after digging a 100-foot well, you can bet that's a sacred place. You can bet that's an important place. And you can bet that the tradition around Jacob's well is big for these Samaritan people who gathered to draw water there. Their father, Jacob, built that well as well. And this is the dispute that goes on between them and the Israelites. It was about noon. We understand that to be a bit of an odd time. And we surmise all kinds of things about the woman based on that and the story that follows. But according to Josephus, this is not a unique story. When Moses meets Jethro's daughters, they too are at the well around noon, according to Josephus. So it's possible that there was a tradition of going to the well at midday for some places, not just morning and evening in the cool of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The disciples had gone into town to buy food, it says. Now this is about the time, for those of you who remember long play records, where the needle goes across the, and you stop the story. 
No, 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 no. This can't be the way it goes. Jesus, a Jewish man, asking an unknown Samaritan woman for a drink at a well, uh-uh, not to be. He's not to speak to her. Really, he doesn't even see her. The trick is, Jesus is thirsty, and he doesn't have a bucket that goes down 100 feet into the well. He has no way of drawing water for himself at that place. It's going to have to be drawn for him. And she's come to draw water, and he says, would you mind giving me a drink? <laughs> the record goes. The Samaritan woman said to him, are you talking to me? Did, did you just say something to me? You can almost hear it in the modern vernacular. You are a Jew, she says, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? One would think the answer would be, I just did. It was language. I spoke. Jesus isn't a smart aleck, so he doesn't answer in this way. He knows what she's saying because Jews and Samaritans don't associate. But he answers her something very, very mysterious. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's intriguing and mysterious. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Let's just shorten all of that dialogue. Who do you think you are, is what she's saying. Right? Who do you think you are? Interesting response. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, including me. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She is just like you and me. Give me the water. I don't want to have to keep doing this. Give me the water. And Jesus isn't talking about water. He's talking about something not seen. He's talking about something that lives inside of you. He's talking about something spiritual, something mysterious. I could give you water, living water, from which you'll never thirst again. I think elsewhere he says things like, I'm the bread of life. The manna that comes from heaven. The woman said, sir, give me this water. He told her, go get your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And he said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said. Okay, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship 
is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Woman, the time is, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That's a lot, isn't it? I need to just let you go. That's enough of a sermon right there. Mercy, right? It would be weird to sit down with someone and have them tell you about your life. It's a nice trick. This is how she sees it anyway. Okay, I see you're a seer, a prophet. You can see right into me. Okay, let's get this theological thing settled, shall we? She changes the subject. How many times have you changed the subject in dialogue with God? God has said something to you and you've said, oh, that's really nice, very interesting. Let's talk about this thing over here instead, shall we? Conviction, we run from it. A call, we often run from that too. No, that isn't very convenient. Let's talk about that another time. Let's do that another time. She changes the subject because it's obviously uncomfortable to talk about her past. She changes the subject because she wants to settle an issue between the people. And Jesus makes it very clear, look, you Samaritans have something. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But you have neglected the prophets. You don't have any of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or the major. You have none of that in your Bible. We worship what we know. You worship what you don't know. But let me just tell you this. The question isn't whether we worship on this mountain or on that mountain. The question is a spiritual one. Just like the water isn't the water you draw from the well to drink, from which you're going to thirst again, it's a spiritual question. Will you worship God in spirit and in truth? Will you do that? That's the question. That is the question. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declares himself, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Nowhere in Israel does he do this, this plainly. It is in Samaria with a woman whom he doesn't know at a well. Kendra Holoviak Valentine at La Sierra has written a new book on the Gospel of John, and she ties this to other well adventures in the Old Testament where the disciples, as well, if you read on, they're very shocked seeing Jesus talking to this woman. It's because in many stories in the Old Testament, it is water given at a well that becomes a marriage contract. And there's this whole overlay of marriage in this passage. Now, Jesus does not marry literally the woman at the well. Okay, I, I want to be clear. At least we have no record of that. But what I'm trying to say and what Kendra, Dr. Holoviak Valentine is trying to say 
is that this is loaded with all kinds of layers of meanings that we as adults really ought to pay attention to. It informs us spiritually about something really, truly amazing. Jew and Gentile coming together, God and humanity reconciled, all of us being a part of one family, one God, one love. I'm running out of time, but I will recap quickly a few other stories. The story is told, the kids actually did this, of Jesus in John chapter 13 with the disciples in the upper room. No servant is to be found. There's been no Shabbat Goyim arranged, nobody to wash the feet, nobody to tend to the supper. It's an oversight. The room's been arranged and rented. The food has been presented. There's tables and settings, but no servant. And Jesus arrives, and the problem becomes obvious. Nobody is going to serve. Remember the text I mentioned a few minutes ago? In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. Jesus takes off his outer garment and wraps himself with a towel and takes on the role of servant, washing the disciples' feet, serving them. We know the story because we reenact it every quarter in communion. We reenact it. We follow Jesus' command in John 13 to wash one another's feet but I wonder sometimes if we're only dealing in symbols. I wonder sometimes if we're dealing only in water we can drink and not the invisible water, not the spiritual water from which we'll never thirst again, the mystery of Christ in us. You see, when we take on servanthood, we aren't just doing a physical act. Okay? Girls, can I ask you to be seated and stay seated, please? Thank you. We're not just doing a physical act of washing someone's feet, which as the kids rightly observed was a weird thing to do. We're taking on something spiritual, a cleansing, and something deeper. We are participating with Christ, obeying his command, expanding the gospel not just to those who are free, but incorporating the idea of service into the story. Well, one of the last stories told was of the crucifixion of Christ, and I'm not going to even take that on because I want to be able to do it justice if I do, and that requires a little bit of time. But our VBS kids were exposed to the idea that all of this culminates in self-sacrificing love, a God who out of his desire to be reconciled to you and to I sends his son as an ambassador and a representative, and holds him even to death, that we might have life, that becomes guilt for us, that we might be free, that becomes a servant to all, that we might reign with him. This story of turning everything on its head, the alienation that we experience quite naturally from God, the rebellion we feel quite naturally to God, this story brings it all back together into a moment of reconciliation.
So Vacation Bible School this week in Weird Animals was a, a reminder to me of the way in which God continues to reconcile the world to himself and continues to call you as a church to be agents of that message. You have been reconciled to God in Christ. He loves you. He wants you. And spiritually, he'll provide for all of your needs. I would like to invite our deacons to come forward, please. I want to remind you that the loose offering today is for Camp Cedar Falls, but that you are free to give your tithes and offerings. Your offerings can have multiple destinations, including our local church budget, the Vacation Bible School program, and other things. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you, boys and girls. Thank you. Please have a seat. Let's remind our parents and everyone that we want to make ourselves available to kind of clean and move things to H after the service. Let's pray a blessing. Oh God of all children, we thank you for our VBS and for these children. And we ask that as your children, all of us might enter the mystery of Christ and fully be the body of Christ in this place. Amen.